Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. Tracking human history by studying the genome and traces in our DNA and piecing together history of civilizations long past and the way our human race is held together. Plus, we find out more about the actual science behind X-Men and whether or not any of it's really believable or based on scientific fact. We all know that genetics plays a pivotal role in our lives. It governs who we are, what we can do, and what we can accomplish. And it also governs not just ourselves as humans, but the animals and plants around us. Genes and genetics are an important part of studying and understanding what the world is right now, but also what the world could be with genetic engineering and modification of genes in food products and implants to help improve and pass along traits. And to an extent, this is what we've been doing as our species has evolved and reproduced over the eons. Now, it's also very interesting to use genetics to bring us back to and understand our source, to understand the commonalities between us and evolving in the great tree of life from our, and our, from our previous ancestors, and our journey that humans, and Homo sapiens in particular, took to develop to get us where we are today. But generally, you know, in the long biological and evolutionary timescales, it kind of just stops once we get to Homo sapiens, a little more consideration of what's going on. But researchers from the University of Oxford, in partnership with the Wellcome Trust of the Royal Society, the Biotechnology and Biological Scientists Research Council, and the British Academy have come together to do a large study around DNA, particularly DNA populations, across Europe. And from this, piece together, taking in known archaeological and historical events with genetic markers and traits and tracking their spread through time to actually give us a picture of how our history, a human history, can also be understood simply by studying the genetic diversity that we see in our populaces across countries. So the research led by George Busby of the University of Oxford have actually developed what they call a statistical machinery. Want of another word, a better way to piece together the puzzle, the mosaic of genomes of the people of Europe as they are today, and work backwards to understand the links and flows of certain genes and traits across Europe. So through this, they've been able to successfully reconstruct the history of a region and, well, show a method that could be applied for analysing and understanding the world. And when you test this statistical method, it actually matches up very well with the actual known historical and archaeological events, thus validating the work that's been done. It also helps show that, you know, you can use these genetic markers as well to also then recover history, areas where you don't have such a good historical and archaeological record. So how did they do it? Well, they applied a new method that compares single genetic variants among populations, taking into account the relationships amongst those markers and based on the physical proximity along the chromosomes. So effectively, they're looking at specific traits and variants, variants of traits, and then looking at their distances along the chromosome line. So their positional, measuring their relative position. That information can be used to subtly infer relationships among populations, including those that are genetically very similar. So if they have a similar kind of ratio spread across their genes, then that means that they obviously are probably more genetically similar or in line, which suggests a population that's, you know, related to each other. And it also shows 
the change as that relationship sort of gets spread as new genes are introduced into the gene pool. So what it demonstrates, their research has shown, that European populations have mixed over time as people have picked up and moved from one place to place. Now, Europe, we think about it as a relatively small area, of, uh, but it's equivalent to the size of Australia or continental United States of America. And there's a number of countries there and a large, very diverse genetic populations as well. And through all the different empires that have travelled through it, you can see the spreads of different genes. The spread of Greek genes in the just around the 100 to 300 CE period, as well as the spread of Roman genes in a similar time. And then in the later part of the medieval period, you start seeing the spread of Turkish genes through into the European populace. And it's quite interesting to actually monitor those and track them and understand them. This relates to the different um, spread of various historical groups at the time. So much as different cultures borrow elements from each other, what we're actually seeing is that the genomes of people alive in Europe today actually contain genetic markers from the ancestries from many different places. And not just from inside Europe, but actually also as well with places outside. For example, researchers found evidence of cross-contact across Central Asia with groups from Mongolia. And we know this, uh, we know that there was the Genghis Khan wave, um, which came in through around 1200 CE. But there was also other groups well before 1000 CE, which suggests a, a long history of actual interaction between these continents and across, this, across the world even in a time when travel long distances was also very difficult. They've also shown quite strong evidence of intermixing with groups from the northeast Europe, including the Shuvas, Russians, and Mordovians, have, have had a long history of sort of interplay with the kind of Central Asian countries. And aside from sort of coming across the steeps with the Huns and the Genghis Khan's great Mongol hordes, there was also quite a lot of expansion and mixing in Europe, especially around the Mediterranean, with people from West North Africa so, and their genes sort of spreading into the northern European populace for over thousands of years. The idea that, you know, the genes of Europe is indistinct and pure from the rest of the world is really very false, and you can see it right along in the genetic traits themselves. So what it shows is that the, the concepts of racial purity or genetic purity and genetic traits are not validated by the science. In fact, going back, you can see the trend and comparison of all of the different genes inside the human beings of Europe and every other country across the world actually tell the rich interwoven history of all of us. No one country or one place is an island. Well, obviously, no one, some countries are islands. But even then, the genes of those people contain a very large history of interactions, change and combinations. And that's what makes humanity so special. So you're reading X-Men and we and we talked a bit about the evolution and how evolution sort of plays a path in it. Do you think that the evolution presented in X-Men is reasonable? I mean, you, you study genetics. You've got a real interest in this. I do, definitely. Like, the idea of the X-Men in general is just hilarious because it, they count it as, like, this X gene. Um, 
which I'm not too sure to be honest because I've only like I focus mostly on people like Storm because I think Storm is amazing. Right, that makes sense. But like the X gene over the history of the Marvel comics has been very all over the place anyway. So I'm gonna have to rely on some of your knowledge here. But from what my understanding is, is that the X Men are mutants based on this one single X gene that causes all of their mutations and what causes them to be different from the normal like homo sapiens yeah they're kind of homo homo superior this kind of this next step in the human evolution chain which is amazing because the idea that one single gene could cause so many different variations in their like phenotype how like it's presented physically is just amazing amazingly correct or amazingly incorrect I'm going to feel, like, amazingly incorrect. (laughs) Um, Because most of the time when we have effects in genes, genes control a very small thing. Basically, a gene is a code for one specific protein, one molecule that's going to affect something. So, for example, like, you could have one single gene that's going to result in a rat's tail being just, like, what we normally see, or if it's going to have a single kink in it, or if they're going to have no tail whatsoever. Right. So it's not like there's a huge thing that sort of impacts everything. It's like, no, actually, the single gene has a really specific job, effectively. It's your it's your blueprint for your DNA. So, it's, for example, it's like a computer code. If you change one specific thing in a computer code, chances are it's just going to have, like, one single effect, right? Right. Um, so the idea that you've got this one single gene that can cause someone to catch on fire spontaneously whenever they want or control the weather or um, even just turn into a giant fairy blue man. Just how can it have so many different... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things going on there. So let, let, let's, take the, uh, let's take the turning on fire example. So firstly, you need to have a way for your, everything to spontaneously combust. So that, that like... Spontaneous combustion is a pretty specific gene. Maybe you could trigger it in a certain organ. But even you've assuming you've done that, you then need to have the gene for your body to be okay with being on fire. So all your different organs now need to have a gene that helps make them better at surviving insane temperatures of combustion. So you need at least two different genes. Never mind, like, if you just want to simplify it to the absolute, like, most basic level, you need at least two genes there. One to make sure that you're okay and that you're, like, flame-proof. And the other one to make sure that you can like actually catch on fire in the first place. Exactly. It's not just like there's an on-off switch to say, okay, now I'm invulnerable to fire. Unfortunately, physical processes don't work like that. <laughs> and there's also going to be something that's like, um, some, you've got to actually create whatever it is that's catching you on fire. In- yeah, oh. you need a fuel source. Exactly. And how are you maintaining that fire in the first place? I mean, it'd be different if it was like a spark, like you were just using the electricity in your body. And channeling that so that it creates a spark outside of your body. Well, maybe maybe they're producing basically they're having a catalytic converter that converts like glucose and fuel that we use to give us food, our food that we gives us energy to power our muscles. Maybe they're just burning that instead. But if they are, great. But now you have just repurposed your entire stomach and digestive system to produce fuel to burn which means that you'd actually need more genes to control those processes to make sure you're making like enough for you to be able to survive as well as working hard enough that you can actually um either store it for when you need it or create enough when you want to to be able to like make this fire yeah so you need a lot of genes and a lot of complex genes all working together simultaneously pretty hard to just stumble into exactly never mind the fact that like Mutated genes usually result in, like, they can result in death. 
that that's just what happens. Yeah. If you end up with something that's changed from the normal, most of the time it's just going to end up with being a loss of function of something or other, and it's going to end up with your body not being able to survive. Or just a functioning in a different way, which means that you are at a slightly more or slightly less advantage. It, it may not even have that large an impact. It just might be there, but it's not going to be necessarily that noticeable because it's only changing one or two, let's even be generous, genes. And like, um, what's what I actually kind of like about it is... For some of it, they're like you, um, mutant gene gets turned on at a certain point. Yeah, you hit puberty and all of a sudden the gene's like, hey, now I'm going to work. The rest of that time, nah, but now puberty's hit, so I'm going to start doing stuff. Which kind of makes sense a little bit if you think about it genetics-wise because you end up with these, for your genes, you've got like repressors and things like that. You constant, some, One gene creates like a repressor that's repressing another gene from producing whatever it's supposed to. So... Right. That idea, like, still kind of makes sense, but what is causing, like, is it just puberty all the time, but there's stuff like the Phoenix Force, which causes random mutants to pop up. You don't always end up with mutants at certain ages. It's it's, it's inconsistent. It's very inconsistent and very hard to come up with, like, a general rule for it. And to take a real meta level here, it changes depending on the author, the franchise, and the time period that you're looking at. Never mind some people who's like, um, mutant powers sometimes get turned off. Like, Yes, that's true. Is that just another gene that's been created that's repressing it? Is that the gene has been de- completely deactivated? Um, it's just... It's very Effect- interesting. The, effectively, they're using genes as a magic device mm-hmm. to be like, okay, now, well, now they can do this thing. I'm not going to go into detail why, but just accept that they can and move on. So <laughs> they're using it as like a universe-wide hand wave to explain scientifically what they're doing in a kind of consistent way. It, like, it works in the sense that if you think of like it in evolution-wise, it kind of makes sense. So it, there's enough science behind it that you think it can make sense as long as you ignore pretty much every like practical purpose of it at all. Yeah, so if you're a geneticist... Or a biology person, it's going to confuse and infuriate you. Mm-hmm. If you're a, an engineer like myself, you're like, all right, okay, I guess I kind of see that. I know a little bit about evolution. It kind of makes sense. Just when you start digging into the real science at its core, it's a bit more fuzzy and unfeasible. Like, it does... You can understand why they use it sometimes, though, because it does make... Like, the mutants are usually being oppressed in some way like um they've rejected from society you've always got humans turning against them and fearing them and that can be used to symbolize any type of group at any type like of point in history that's right so it's a really good narrative device and it kind of also works really well by tying into the puberty angle as well because like kid and it's why one of the reasons why it's so successful before kids as well you know growing up the world's changing they feel different they feel like no one understands them and gets them or they've got something strange going on with them so it's a really compelling narrative device for them just with a bit of science attached to it on the side but it's actually going to be pretty cool with um with the future that we're heading towards because we're definitely at the moment actually doing a unit um at university um based on things like the lore and um basically biotechnology and stuff but part of what we're studying at the moment is genetic discrimination now when i talk about that a lot of people think of stuff like gattaca which is very big on it So being discriminated against based on your genetic code, which is becoming easier and easier for us to now, like, get. For example, you can pay, like, $1,000 
and you can go and know your entire genetic code. Right, but we don't necessarily know what all those genes do yet, or specifically do. That's um, so much. Yeah, but uh, at least we can like we know that the genes are there. We just don't necessarily know how they work and how they connect with each other and operate. And when you think of like the X Men, they're discriminated based on their genetic code. I mean, it gives them these superpowers, which is why everyone is so terrified, and also because they're different. But also, we're moving into a future where we're all focusing on our genes so much and our makeup and what makes us different and separate. Yeah, so that's sort of an interesting angle on the whole thing and overall as well with what it actually means in the modern world of actual scientific development. So it'll be interesting to see if the creators or the writers of like um, X-Men, how they, if they actually embrace that and what type of take they take on it, if they do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of one of those things where science marches on and the stories have to adapt to change that. And I'm sure in, in 20, 30 years' time, when Marvel stories will be dealing with the complexities of the ethics of even even more so than they're doing now. That, that's... All right, I'm going to cut it there. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about how studying DNA helps us track human history through time and space. Plus, we also learned about the science behind X-Men and whether or any of it's really technically genetically accurate. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.